This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie slash history slash chome. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website, chome.org. In this episode, recorded on the 6th of October 2016, Dr Rosemary Wall from the University of Hull reads her paper entitled The British Red Cross in 1916, Conscription, the Easter Rising and the Battle of the Somme. The chair for this paper was Dr David Dernan. I'm delighted to introduce Dr Rosemary Wall. Uh, Dr. Wall obtained her PhD at Imperial College London and has since held postdoctoral research roles at the University of Oxford and at King's College London. She is currently a senior lecturer at the University of Hull, where she's currently completing a co-authored book on British colonial nursing with colleagues at King's College London, and indeed she has published widely on the history of nursing. She is also the principal investigator for the new project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council entitled Crossing Boundaries, The History of First Aid in Britain and France between 1909 and 1989, for which she is working with co-investigator Professor Barry Doyle at the University of Huddersfield. And in connection with this research, she is writing a book on the history of the British Red Cross. Thank you very much, David. Um, So today I'm going to talk about 1916 specifically. It's part of a chapter of my History of the British Red Cross, which is on the First World War. Um, As David's just said, then um, it's also connected with uh, my research project on the history of first aid. So I came to work on both these projects because I was interested in the kind of intellectual questions around the history of first aid and those boundaries between who could practice different types of medicine. So how can the public practice medicine? And that kind of stems from my PhD research on the use of bacteria and how um, knowledge from the public um, about bacteria was utilised. So so as David said, I'm working on um, this with Professor Barry Doyle and we're doing a comparative history of Britain and France. So I'm grateful for the Arts and Humanities Research Council for some of the funding towards this paper. Um, So this is part of a much broader study though. It's 150 years because the uh, British Red Cross in its first um, incarnation as the National Aid Society began in 1870 to assist the Franco-Prussian War um, and to assist people who were suffering in the the Franco-Prussian War. So there are a variety of chapters, I think it's up to about 14 now, um, and the First World War is just one of those chapters. So we've got this traditional story of the voluntary aid detachments and more in the First World War chapter, but then later chapters look at things like comparing um, the Biafran War, Cyprus and Vietnam, um, looking at the troubles in Ulster, for example, and um, first aid around blast victims. Um, looking at things like first aid at Glastonbury, um, as you've got pictures there, and just uh, preparation for, for first aid and, and disasters in general. So um, it's, it's a really wide-ranging project and it requires me to know about British history, but also global history as well. So I'm talking about 1916 today. That's the kind of central core of my First World War chapter. I'm starting that chapter with 1912, looking at the kind of pilot of people going out to the Balkan Wars. Um, And then this is the kind of middle of the chapter where I look at the effect of the Military Service Act's conscription, um, the Easter Rising and the Battle of the Somme. 
I'm not going to take them in quite that order today. I'm going to look at Easter Rising last because that's new research. Um, I've been just doing it in the National Library of Ireland, kind of complementing what I'd found um, in London and Oxford. Uh, so um, to not disrupt the kind of story I've been telling so far, I've added that in at the end. But I'd like to think about how to integrate the Irish story more into this chapter. And one of the other reasons why I've started with the First World War chapter is because of local connections in Hull. So during the Somme, um, Tolkien worked as a signals officer and he um, contracted trench fever, which is caught from lice in the trenches. And um, it's a disabling condition that keeps coming back again and again. You know, all those kind of symptoms of headache, dizziness, um, fever that are not, it's not possible to carry on um, as a... Um, a signals officer under those conditions. So he was brought back to Britain and then ended up at the Humber garrison. Um, so defending Britain from bombardment from Germany. Um, so things like there were, there were um, bombardments from the sea and from the air in that area of the country. So it's, it's a real kind of home defence role. And because he was ill again, he um, was in hospital on our campus at the University of Hull, um, what's now part of our campus. It's a, a building that used to be owned by an estate agent that was donated to the Red Cross during the war. So it's that kind of local story around the Battle of the Somme and the First World War that's um, really close to, to home for me. Um, and so I've just um, included here some information on the, on the history of the Red Cross in case you're not as familiar with how it was established. So as I said before, it begins in Britain uh, with support for the Franco-Prussian War um, people who were suffering on both sides, um, where £225,000 are collected for that. Um, and also there are volunteers going out. So on, on the right, there's the first um, person who uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice by dying, by assisting um, people during the Franco-Prussian War. But um, the Red Cross begins um, in 1859, really, with um, Henri Dunant's account of the Battle of Solferino and the suffering that he saw in that war in northern Italy. And then it leads on to the Geneva Conventions um, through a conference in 1863 and then the convention in 1864, where national societies start to be formed um, aligned with that convention. Um, and there's the idea of that emblem of the Red Cross, meaning that um, people aiding people medically shouldn't be attacked during war. Um, and that idea of neutrality is starting to form, that um, there's that assistance for both sides um, from um, people who are representing the Red Cross. It has a slow start in Britain, um, so it doesn't, Britain doesn't um, join this movement really until 1870. Um, and it doesn't, join it with the title of being a Red Cross Society until 1905. Um, so it's got this slow beginning and it's got this confusion because of this of St. John Ambulance as well being formed by the Order of St. John. And often it was John Fairley from the Order of St. John who was going to meetings in Geneva and not members of the Red Cross. So there's a lot of um, ambiguity about what's happening in Britain um, in connection with the Red Cross. However, there's ongoing um, support in terms of donations for people suffering in wars. So the Turco-Serbian War, for example, in 1876 to 7 raises um, £10,000 in donations and £30,000 for the Russo-Turkish War um, victims in 1877 to 8. Um, so people are active in Britain in trying to support people overseas who are, who are suffering. 
So during the South African War, Lord Lansdowne at the War Office believed that it was necessary to have a continental-style Red Cross Society in 1899 and established the Central British Red Cross Committee to centralise voluntary aid, with the National Aid Society still continuing. So £500,000 was collected for the South African War. Professional nurses went to South Africa together with untrained men and women, wanting to do something to help, but this was a fairly unorganised movement. So following the patriotic and highly organised activities of the Japanese Red Cross in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5, both the British and American societies were reframed and reorganised. In Britain, the organisation then becomes the British Red Cross Society in 1905, with the aim of having branches across the country ready to recruit volunteers. So one of the outcomes of this is the formation of voluntary aid detachments from 1909, with very early work um, taking place in counties like Derbyshire, and often starting, um, in the case of Derbyshire, with male detachments, because it was growing out of the territorial force. Um, so between 1909 and 1914, though, women are joining too, so uh, 50,000 women flocked to join, and um, there were more women than men. But what I'm keen to highlight in this paper and why I'm looking at military conscription is that a third of voluntary aid detachment members through the war were men. So what did this mean when conscription happened of men? Um, what did it mean um, when there's the crises of 1916 of conscription, the Battle of the Somme and the Easter Rising all happening um, within months of each other? So that's why I've picked um, this period of 1916 to be the core of my First World War chapter to tackle how does the Red Cross deal um, with this problem of losing men um, who are signing up um, and, and being conscripted. So voluntary aid detachment members were not just um, working as voluntary nurses or orderlies. Um, however, part of their training for all members was first aid. So that's something I'm interested in um, for my broader first aid project. Um, so detachments meet once a month and practice bandaging and splints, arresting hemorrhages, stretcher drills, bed making, including making beds with patients in them in these years leading up to the war. And they're preparing for a war that might be on British soil. That's one of the goals that is to have this um, kind of civil defence core uh, that can help medically during war. So they learn in things like residential camps um, from 1911, which includes pitching tents. Um, and then they combined with St. John's Ambulance to not be in competition. And this was as a result of the War Office um, asking for this to happen. So during the First World War, there's about 126,000 voluntary aid detachment members. And um, with the Red Cross, about 90,000. And again, all these people are trained in first aid. And one third of those VAD members are men. 23,000 of these VAD members served in military hospitals during the war, which leads to the kind of um, issue of what else were people doing? So they're working in hospitals, they're working in convalescent camps, um, and working um, as, there's also professional nurses who join through the Red Cross, people who've been trained um, for three years in hospitals. Um, there's people working in stores, um, so they're doing things like collecting garments, equipment and food. They're working with motor ambulances, um, with ambulance trains. They're also organising things like fundraising, so they're the British Prisoners of War Fund and dispatching the thousands of parcels that were collected um, for prisoners of war. They're working to search for the wounded, missing and prisoners of war in an inquiry department, um, on rest stations, on the lines of communications, so kind of organising buffets at railway stations, for example. And, and again, there's another example of fundraising through the Times newspaper. 
So this is an image of um, one of the departments um, that we're looking for missing and wounded, uh, an inquiry department, but also there's this activity that's going on um, in connection with Sphagnum Moss. So I'll just read out this poem that was written about that to kind of explain what was happening. The doctors and the nurses look north with eager eyes and call on us to send them the dressing that they prize. No other is its equal in modest bulk it goes until it meets the gaping wound when the red lifeblood flows. Then spreading, swelling in its might, it checks the fatal loss and kills the German, heals the hurt, the kindly sphagnum moss. So that was written by Mrs A.M. Smith in 1917, who was a member of the Edinburgh War Dressing Supply Organisation. And this is an activity that's happening a lot in Scotland and Ireland, um, as well as other parts of, of the UK, where this moss is being collected and dried and then used in bandages uh, and dressings because of its absorbent and antiseptic qualities. Um, so again, there are the, all these activities that are going on uh, amongst the VAD detachments, the, the VA, sorry, the voluntary aid detachments, which um, are beyond uh, the kind of popular image uh, of nursing. So... At the beginning of the war, we've got these uh, this um, data about personnel. Um, so there were many more women than men, but still, as I said, there's 24,710 men and 49,206 women. So it's not really to be dismissed that there were that many men working for the working within the Red Cross. Literature on men and caring roles in the First World War has focused on the Royal Army Medical Corps and stretcher bearers, not realising that there's a large cadre of men with detailed training and first aid, many of whom were recruited and would have known how to use these skills as soldiers. So that's one of the aspects I'm interested in for the, the first aid project, that there's 24,710 men who were trained in first aid before war breaks out. So how were they using that um, 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 beyond, you know, looking at the Royal Army Medical Corps, there's lots of men who were trained to help soldiers. All men joining voluntary aid detachments had to have first aid training within 12 months or they would be kicked out of these detachments. Um, so there's also stretcher bearers working in World War One. They had to have 10 weeks training in first aid and bearing, including drills for practice and to develop physical strength. So excellent texts like this one... Um, will um, form part of the work on, um, on the first aid project. And we can see that these men, um, I, I love these pictures where they get into these kind of almost choreographed routines of how to pick up stretches. I imagine it like a flip book, you know, where you could, I think you're meant to look at them quickly, but they, there's a whole series of images of how, the, how they have to stand. And then suddenly you've got six men instead of four. I'm not sure what's going on there. And then they disappear again. Um, but there's also kind of, you know, serious issues with um, looking at how to resuscitate people. Um, for example, there are very different methods in the First World War um, than those that we'd use today, um, kind of manual um, mechanical methods rather than mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. So um, I think it's really important to highlight this role of men and care in the First World War. Anne Summers' generally authoritative book on military nursing, Angels and Citizens, can be overly feminist in its approach to personnel relating to the army. It makes the claim... Throughout the period 1910 to 14, roughly two-thirds of voluntary aid detachment members were women. The predominantly female membership reflected the prior claim of the territorial force on the patriotism of male volunteers under the age of 40. The difficulty all around is getting the men, as an administrator in the London area wrote in November 1918. 
All Red Cross branches reported problems in recruiting men and apathy amongst those enrolled. Some branches had no male detachments at all before 1914. Both in their origins and in their subsequent history, therefore, the VADs may justly be characterised as a women's movement, although its natural direction was always in the hands of men. And that does close quote from Anne Summers. Later, she argues that, quote, by 1914, few people thought of military nursing as a man's job. The uh, territorial force has been constructed on an all-female basis, and the VAD scheme had quickly deleted its original provision for supplementary male hospital staff. And then there's a glimpse of men's work in Lynn MacDonald's The Roses of No Man's Land in discussing the role of men in carrying amputees. She, ar she argues that male orderlies were inevitably unfit and too old. However, the male person whom MacDonald focuses on as contributing is Sidney Noel Brown, who, who suffered from club feet and hadn't been able to sign up in 1916 after conscription. As everyone else was being conscripted, he decided to make his male VAD work full-time to contribute to the war effort, um, having worked part-time for two years whilst being articled to a chartered accountant. He worked at an orthopaedic hospital in Roehampton, where he interviewed 22 to 23,000 men about their new boots to go with artificial legs. So from Lynn MacDonald, we only get this lone voice of a man who suffered from a condition which prevented him from joining up rather than hearing about the thousands of men who had already joined up prior to 1914. Despite the Military Service Act of uh, 1916, um, in April, a report in the Red Cross Journal still argued that for men, there were various carpentering jobs to be done and more important, orderlies to be provided. So there's lots of evidence um, against these ideas that men were not going to be working as orderlies anymore um, and about the number of men who, who continued to work within the Red Cross. So this is just an image of what male VAD detachments look like. So this is the kind of uh, pocker image of women, especially the one on the left, the one that's the nurse. And we've got two other images here of, of the other kind of um, outfits they had for different roles. And um, we've got men here from the Ashbourne Red Cross Society. This is the beginning of the war. This is Ashbourne in Derbyshire. We can see that they seem to have just normal um, suits on with uh, Red Cross armbands. And I was really interested to find in the um, National Library um, here yesterday, this image of the County Dublin number seven branch um, of the British Red Cross Society, where they've got a very militarised uniform with, with red crosses. I've not seen one quite like this before, and, and I'm often being asked about what did men wear. Um, and so it will lead me to search for more images like that um, in other areas. So what I was interested, I don't know if you can see these um, numbers from right the other side of the room. I'll try and read some of them out. Um, I was interested in how did 1916 affect the numbers of men who were um, volunteering and then working with the Red Cross. So in January 1916, we've got 71,719 personnel. Um, over 56,000 of those are women and just over 15,000 of those are men. By May 1916, there's 81,000 personnel, so we can see there's a real drive um, of people joining in that period, 10,000 more. Um, but there's only slightly more women, 57,000 women, but there's 23,885 men, which doesn't seem to make any sense. There should be a crisis of these men um, being conscripted in this period um, after the Military Service Acts. 
So um, what's probably happening here, um, thanks to advice I got from Adrian Gregory um, when I gave this paper at Oxford, to look into the, the um, tribunals that happened around the Military Service Acts. And James McDermott's um, book on these tribunals was um, incredibly useful for, for understanding this, that um, men would be advised if they were unfit or they couldn't support, they, they couldn't join the war because they really had a very um, supportive role for relatives, for example, like children or their mother, when no one else could um, assist, they would be asked to find another way to support the war. So I think we can see here with this um, huge increase in men of about just over 8,000 men joining in this period that um, they were probably asked, you know, to, to find another way of helping and therefore the number is um, increasing those um, men working with the Red Cross. So following the Military Service Act, the importance of men for the Red Cross workforce was stressed by the chairman of the British Red Cross, Arthur Stanley, who asked Lord Derby, the Secretary of State for War, to consider the military character of the work performed by men serving under the Red Cross, as, for example, drivers of motor ambulances, orderlies, mechanics in France at the request of military authorities and in this country. VAD members employed in military hospitals, the assistant clerks, etc., of county directors and at headquarters, concluding, um, he said, I hope that you will see your way to allow us to retain those men who we consider to be indispensable. And I can assure you that it will be our wish and that of the men themselves to do everything in our power to further the effects which you are making to provide the men necessary for the armies of the empire. Lord Derby responded, nobody recognises more fully than I do the work done by the Red Cross, both at home and abroad, and I should indeed be sorry if any action on my part interfered in any way with the efficiency of that work. I realise, as everybody must, that the work, if not done by you, would have to be done by the army, and that to take all of your men away from you would be a case of robbing Peter to pay, to pay Paul. At the same time, one cannot shut one's eyes to the fact that there are many men doing work for the Red Cross both as motor drivers and as orderlies, whose proper place is in the fighting ranks, and it is quite impossible for the military authorities to say that all men employed by you should be exempt from military service, nor do I think that you would wish it to be so. He continues, what I should suggest, therefore, is that all your men of serviceable age, whether married or single, should enlist under the group system, and that you should do all in your power to replace single men with married men. Darby advised that he would need to argue for men who were indispensable and to look for older men or men unfit for, for military service for roles like accountancy within the Red Cross, but that they must be examined first by the army medical authorities. So he continued to say, in order to carry out this arrangement, I will ask our military authorities in France to call for a return of all of your men who are of military age and cannot be certified as medically unfit. These men can then be asked to enlist in the group system and be called up as you're able to replace them. Um, so notice was to be given uh, when the Red Cross um, were replacing these men and the Red Cross must do the same for men serving at home, including in voluntary aid detachments. So it turns out, I mean, this is very kind of forceful language um, from, from Derby. It turns out that he's actually the brother of Arthur Stanley, who's um, in charge of the Red Cross. So um, there's obviously kind of um, this sibling, uh, well, I don't know if it's a sibling rivalry, but there's certainly uh, no holds barred in how Derby is speaking to his brother about what must be happening. Responding to Derby's demands, by April 1916, the Red Cross Journal reported that the reorganisation of military hospitals was taking place 
and all VAD members who could and should offer to work away from home. Members who can be spared are earnestly begged to forward their names as soon as possible in the usual way, through the Commandant and County Director, the journal stated. Increased numbers of nursing members will be wanted to replace the nursing orderly. Those holding first aid and home nursing certificates will be accepted and full details will be forwarded upon application to Devonshire House. So in May, all officers were asked to withdraw their VAD members from canteen work, except for with sick and wounded, because of a possibly serious shortage of VADs to do the work for which they were organised. And it was reported by one commanding officer of a well-known military hospital that all hospitals were replacing men with women and that hospitals needed 54 VAD nurses as soon as possible. So um, these are the kind of numbers that are happening of, of male VADs in, um, v VAD members in London. Um, so we've got um, a dip actually in London in 1916, going down from just over 1,000 to 925. But then, just like those national statistics, there's this huge increase in 1917, there's uh, 1,540, and then over 2,000 by 1918. So again, probably because of these tribunals, the number of men is, is eventually increasing in London. And then I'm interested in this um, data from Glasgow, which is from uh, 1915, where we can see the types of roles in Glasgow that men had. Um, I hope to find this for other areas too, but so far this is um, the data that I've found. Um, and it shows that um, the highest number of men were working in those restrooms, so working, um, for example, in providing um, comfortable facilities and food for men who were um, stepping off at, at railway stations and being cared for at railway stations who were unwell or just needed rest. Um, they were unloading ambulance trains in the next largest numbers. And then um, some of them were working in military hospitals and there's 114 in Glasgow who are working in county auxiliary hospitals, so they presumably as orderlies. So um, there's this kind of role, as I said, in, in these restrooms, but then there's a considerable role of these men in care. So the kind of training that men had compared to women can be found in the kind of tests and information that we have about first aid training for men and women. And it's remarkably similar what men were trained compared to women. Some of the roles are more physical, such as stretcher bearing, um, but otherwise um, there's um, this similarity in men's uh, caring roles. So Charles Fisher's diary of his work as an orderly is at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Um, Fisher wrote much more about his social activities than his work, but he notes that he worked with badly hit wounded who, who poured in. He carried a French soldier whose calf had been blown away. He helped the wounded out of ambulances, and he mentioned seeing a man shot through the right eye and dead, as well as additional roles such as censoring. So all of this evidence um, from these reports of these local society, local branches, from the first aid um, instructions of what people had to learn and the exams they had to take, and um, the um, and the kind of memoir that I've, I've just talked about, the, the diary, it all is very much contrary to Anselm's claim that VAD work by men was being filtered out at the beginning of the war. I've also been trying to find out the impact on hospitals, and um, so far I've only found one direct comment which reveals concerns about conscription and reveals the work of men as night nurses. So this, again, is contrary to what Anne Summers was saying because it's from 1916. So Evelina Behrens writes about her hospital. In view of the compulsory military service bill introduced today, this is in May, 
um, the one that included married men, it is possible, though I hope and likely, that my men's VAD will collapse. Should this unfortunate occurrence take place, may I count on you and Miss Hurden and Miss Alexander to take your turns at night nursing at the hospital if required. So there's further problems that happen in 1915 and 16 that the Red Cross isn't the only organisation that's trying to recruit men and women um, for voluntary service. In September 1915, the general service scheme was instigated by the War Office to start the replacement of men in military hospitals with women. And this led to 15,000 women in these roles as shorthand typists, clerks, drivers, pharmacists, dispensers, laboratory and x-ray assistants, dental assistants, telephonists, cooks, storekeepers, waitresses, house members, laundresses and ward maids, so going beyond what the Red Cross was recruiting for. In Scotland, the branches reveal clearly that the number of men now working for the Red Cross had dramatically declined in that period. Even before 1916, the number of men was affected by volunteering for war. So Banffshire reported losing considerable numbers in 1914 to 15. For April 1916 to March 1918, uh, sorry, March 1917, the period relevant to this paper, branches like Aberdeenshire recorded losing 80 male members to the forces and other war work. As well as these recruitment issues in connection with uh, men, there were also retention difficulties with women. In 1916, contracts were broken by 161 women for health reasons, 93 broke contract for home trouble, 35 for marriage, and 99 wished to leave. So this means a total of 388 women were recorded as quitting. The 15th of July um, 1916 issue of the Red Cross Journal ran an urgent appeal. It stated, we are seriously distressed by the anticipation of a shortage of VAD members for service in military hospitals. All the members who can give whole time should be doing so either in their local auxiliary hospitals or in military hospitals. It is probable that the beds will be fuller in the near future and we must never fail the sick and wounded. If more names are not sent up by members willing to replace the nursing orderlies in military hospitals, so orderlies that are referring to men, um, we shall fail. But surely both officers and members will help again as they have helped in the past. I should like to add that our new volunteers must give generously as those in the past have given. We sometimes fell, feel as though the eager hearts had all come forward and that now we have to depend more on those who have waited and need encouragement to give what they should give of their own free will. Please don't think that we were calling upon the devoted members working in their own hospitals who were just as much wanted as those in the larger military hospitals. We are calling to those who, though free to give whole time, are only putting in part time because they have not yet understood that their country needs them and that the sick and wounded will suffer if they do not give all they have to give in devotion and sacrifice. And this is signed by Catherine Furs, who's um, the, um, the director of, of the women's VAD, uh, the VADs. So, I mean, what's important in this, which would be a running theme through um, a lot of the evidence that I'm going to talk about next, is that that's the 15th of July, 1916. There's no member of, there's no mention there of the Battle of the Somme, which commenced on the 1st of July. So there's this kind of, although they're saying that people have not realised and understood that their country needs them, the Red Cross are not stressing why the, um, the country needs them. So there's also competition from other roles in national service increasing. A meeting in January 1917 discussed the very serious problem if VADs were not included in this scheme, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. Many women were on, um, many women on the 
Red Cross waiting list would be lost. Auxiliary hospitals would have to close or be run by the War Office, um, the Red Cross feared. At the next meeting in February 1917, it was noted that despite there being nearly 2,000 women on the waiting list in July, 20, uh, in July 1916, none of those women had actually been available for service in a military hospital. Because they, they joined up to other organisations in the meantime. So by December 1917, these issues led to the resignation of Dame Catherine Furs, the Commander-in-Chief of the Women's VADs. She resigned as a result of the Admiralty's introduction of the Women's Service, without there being coordination between the Red Cross and the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. She argued for central recruiting. She was very concerned that the new state-controlled um, WAAC would be competing for the same people and funds, and that that organisation was supported directly by the War Office, unlike the Red Cross. Furs even criticised the Red Cross's own recruiting methods, so that issue of those 2,000 women being on the waiting list but none being available. An appeal in the summer of 1917 had brought in 15,000 applications, but only 450 of those women were actually recruited after their medical certificates and three references were taken up. The lengthy procedure that the Red Cross went to in recruiting women meant that women um, accepted work elsewhere if they were called it. So in summary, she argued, I am still convinced if part, at any rate, of the VAD organisation is not brought officially directly under the government, the whole will be left behind by the new corps. After the magnificent way in which the VADs have justified their existence, this would be nothing less than a tragedy and an injustice. So together with these broader reasons, Furs argued that there were internal problems in the Red Cross. She argued that there was chaotic administration of the VADs. They um, have asked repeatedly for help and understanding and um, her experience as a senior officer impressing for these urgency of reforms, you know, wasn't getting the help that she needed. VAD members and their friends had come to her in distress and had reproached her for not helping them. And she'd been sitting powerless to give um, what she knew that she had to do. She also took the opportunity to complain that the committee which oversaw the VADs was too male and that women should govern women. The editor of the Red Cross Journal denied this claim, using the reason that there were male VAD members, so there were both male and female representatives on the committee. However, um, this is a bit kind of um, duplicitous because the introduction of women on that committee had only recently occurred. So with the first month of the Battle of the Somme leading to further crises, there was an appeal to the London press on the 29th of July because of a serious deficiency of women for the hospitals. With the problems in recruitment, the Red Cross announced it would now not require the first aid or home nursing certificates, and that those with um, certificates would take on more duties, but um, it was urgent that more volunteers were recruited. So obviously this is in response to, on the 1st of July 1916, there were almost 60,000 casualties, and this includes 35,500 wounded. So as Gary Sheffield has argued, this was the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army. There was a letter sent to the press um, about the situation um, on the 29th of July 1916, but it doesn't highlight the Battle of the Somme in particular. So um, to quote, a, very, a real and very urgent necessity has arisen for more nurses. VAD nursing members, women, and VAD general service members in military and auxiliary hospitals. 
The demands made by, upon us by the military authorities are very heavy and cannot be met out of the existing supply. There must still be many women who are not giving the whole of their time in service to the war and have no ties which prevent them from doing so. We earnestly call upon these women to come forward and help us in this emergency and thus enable us to answer the call of sick and wounded men. So again, it's not just uh, new women that the Red Cross are trying to attract, it's those who are only volunteering part-time. So this um, kind of hiding the issue of the Battle of the Somme in this, um, these kind of press releases um, is not unique to the Red Cross. So this is um, an excerpt um, from the Times where on the reporting on the 1st of July, the title is The Day Goes Well. Um, and then we've got on the 14th of July, um, owing to large demands now being made by the War Office to serve in military hospitals, volunteers are urgently required. But again, not really stressing why exactly that's uh, needed. And then there's this kind of positive one here uh, where there's a story of somebody um, who kind of talks about the Red Cross sisters giving delicious cups of tea, you know, and it's, it's all this kind of um, really positive stuff going on. The push, oh, the push is all right, it's working out very much as per schedule, etc. Um, about about what's happening um, in the war. So the Battle of the Somme film, um, which um, was available to see from September um, by the public, um, it shows the kind of horrors of um, burying soldiers at the end of it, but it doesn't show that graphic issue that soldiers are being dismembered and therefore the amount of care that those soldiers need and why so many uh, voluntary aid detachment members were needed to provide individual care, such as feeding um, to these um, men, um, as well as things like irrigating wounds, which I'll come to, to some images of. By July the 21st, um, there's more kind of detail about this. How are the men who have lost a leg or an arm to be treated? This is again in the Times by July the 21st. Are they to be left to struggle along as best they may with small pensions? There's kind of issues about how they're going to live as veterans by then. A bit of acknowledgement. Um, there's um, here, again, there's uh, one about Red Cross helpers being wanted on the 26th in a small article. And then there's more um, on the 27th of July, so leading up to that big press release on the 29th of July, um, saying that uh, 400 VAD nursing members are urgently wanted. So I'm interested in um, what was happening in terms of recruitment, in terms of censorship of, of the reality of, of war. So, um, for example, it's... I'm looking at how historians talk about this as well as how it was talked about at the time. So I think that historians of medicine are crucial for really understanding the effects of war and the effects of the Somme. William Philpott's account of the Somme briefly explores the effects of, of this battle, the motor ambulances conveying injured men across London and the appearance of convalescing maimed men in the streets. Keith Jeffrey, in his book 1916, doesn't explore the horrors of the wounded in the Somme, but he does explain the destruction of bodies which the French suffered at Verdun earlier in the year. So perhaps this is implied that um, battles um, will, will result on, in this. Yeah, reading a book from a more medical perspective, Lynn MacDonald's The Roses of No Man's Land, the scale of work for the Red Cross, Royal Army Medical Corps and St John Ambulance becomes apparent. 12,000 wounded men reached the casualty clearing stations on the first day. Then 33,392 um, patients were carried by hospital trains from the casualty clearing stations to base hospitals in Boulogne, Rouen and the Havre. The rest had to go straight to England. 
Hospital ships and trains shuttled men to La Havre, and hospital ships were crammed with stretchers. A VAD member at a hospital in Rochdale remembered how the walking wounded walked past her house all day, um, helped by Red Cross workers. In the hospital, men were on stretchers on the billiard table, beds squashed together. Um, she also talks about VAD members working with dressings without anaesthetic and the intensive work with five people working on one person, for example, soaking wounds with saline. Um, so I think um, the Crimson Fields drama that the BBC produced um, a few years ago um, indicates the kind of horrors of, of some of these treatments and, and the, um, how many people were needed to help care for people with these kind of new techniques um, like shown in this image of irrigation of wounds and how painful those kind of um, treatments were. And we can find out more from kind of pacifist literature, literature like Vera Britton's account from the 1930s and we have to be wary of that because it's written um, so long after the war where she stresses the kinds of um, pain that people went through and, and the, the work that she had to do and Ellen Lamotte she published um, her accounts of um, soldiers suffering uh, in 1915 uh, to 16. Um, they were censored in Britain and they were censored in the US after they joined the war. But there are these accounts of, of the kind of work that uh, people volunteering from the Red Cross or working as professional nurses had to, to um, undertake. So, for example, Vera Britton in her famous memoir, Testament of Youth, talks about her first account of um, addressing uh, with a gangrenous leg wound, slimy and green and scarlet with the bone laid bare, and that it turned her sick and faint for a moment. So, um, one of the reasons why I got interested in um, Ireland in this story is looking at the number of auxiliary hospital beds that were available for the Battle of the Somme. It doesn't increase as much as um, was necessary really, um, considering the scale of wounded, as you can see in this period, it's only increasing by about 5,000 beds um, across the country. Um, sorry, it's, it's more than that across the country. By about 10,000 beds across the country. But I noted, you can only see um, slightly on this, I'm going to enhance this in the later graph, that the Irish beds are the, almost the lowest. Um, the, they take over Aldershot, just one place, um, by July 1917. And then suddenly they decline dramatically. So um, if we look at this slide, which kind of enhances what was happening in Ireland, um, I wanted to investigate why there's um, over 1,600 beds available um, provided by the Red Cross um, during mid-1917, and then it drops literally to 21 beds, according to the records by September 1917. So I was interested, was it nationalism and, and the East Rising that um, eventually led to this kind of drop? Um, I don't think that's the case from the research that I've been undertaking this week. I think there are probably other reasons for that, and maybe David can help <laughs> to discuss that with me. Thank you. So as part of studying the Red Cross in 1916, I think it's crucial to include the East Rising to highlight how much it's essential to include the Red Cross in Ireland as part of this story of the first 50 years of the British Red Cross. The official reports claimed that the work of the Red Cross had been an enormous success in terms of donations and the provision of services by volunteers in place of Royal Army Medical Corps personnel um, in Ireland. So I was interested from this though, did, why did these beds seem to com almost completely disappear? Um, did another organisation take them on rather than it being as a result of Irish nationalism? 
So this is what I've been trying to investigate using records from the Red Cross in London, um, using um, personal collections from the Bodleian Library in Oxford and looking at the National Library of Ireland um, reports. So uh, what happened to these beds? References in reports to one hospital uh, mentioned the hospital closing as the buildings were requisitioned by the government, but then this hospital apparently reopened elsewhere. Another was that the War Office took the hospital for officers only. Another hospital was affected because um, the Red Cross thought there should be a full metropolitan hospital, so I'm guessing that that one was recategorised. A specialist hospital for limb injuries was opened and one hospital was closed with all patients transferred there. And um, within um, his uh, thesis, David's also talked about other kind of specialist hospitals which were established. So maybe they were taking over and run by other organisations um, in contrast to the Red Cross, which had organised obviously 1,600 beds before. And it's also been interesting to investigate the Easter Rising to find out um, the kind of additional work um, at home which the Red Cross uh, volunteers were, were doing during the Easter Rising. So um, most of the Dublin branches refer to assistance from their members and um, people being given honours um, for their work during the Rising. First aiders could have to deal with serious wounding. An account from an Irish volunteer uh, recalled the wounds of, of one man. They had to cope with his wounds whilst fighting continued. The blood was flowing from wounds staunch. Uh, the blood flowing from wounds had to be staunched and to keep moving him from place to place to save him from grenades. Um, his clothes were embedded in the flesh and there were 25 wounds on his body, five dangerous and nine serious, and an artery had been cut. So he had to be carried um, to a hospital and he was, they used the protection of the Red Cross um, flag, but um, were very concerned that the British would not respect that and that they would be likely to be shot at. Um, there's also arguments about fundraising in connection with these Irish Red Cross supports, uh, reports and arguing basically that in Ireland by 1917 there's much more fundraising happening in terms of population and in terms of wealth than there was in, the, in England and Wales. So the reports argue that there was um, the Ireland was a ratio of 1 to 28 poorer than England and Wales, and yet 4.5 times um, donations were made if you kind of worked it out in terms of population compared to England and Wales. So the, the Irish um, report um, from the Red Cross claimed this was a result of efficiency of organisation and generosity from the Irish people, and that even more money had been donated directly to um, the British Red Cross um, Society HQ from Ireland. It stressed that all social grades of the people, all religious denominations, Catholic and Protestant, nationalist and unionist, rich and poor, had um, shown their loyalty basically to the Red Cross and to war funds. Um, so to conclude, um, I'm interested in trying to find out about the kind of realities of the First World War and the Red Cross, rather than myths and sanitised history. So a lot of the kind of um, literature on Red Cross and um, and the First World War at the moment has kind of looked at those uh, the kind of idea that there was a controversy and a challenge between uh, trained nurses and volunteer nurses. I want to go beyond that story. I want to. I think that um, that that obviously existed, but I'm, I'm investigating that in another within another paper, and it will be within my chapter that um, this was kind of triggered by the 
British Journal of Nursing and Ethel Bedford Fenwick, who was arguing for registration of nurses. And the Red Cross were continually trying to defend themselves within the journal, saying that there wasn't an issue and that volunteer nurses were not trying to argue that they had the training um, that professional nurses had. So um, I'm interested, obviously, in showing this role of men in the Red Cross during the First World War. I'm not going into great detail about these kind of gender issues about care because Jessica Meyer, um, who works at Leeds, is exploring this through soldiers' diaries and men experiencing wounds or witnessing friends suffering and also caring through the Royal Army Medical Corps. Um, but Jessica Meyer and I are basically revising these feminist stories of care in war, but with different approaches. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Um, there was a lot of questions. So I, I'd probably be there.